Welcome everyone. I'm joined by Callum Godfrey and you're listening to a Evolution Exchange gaming podcast. And today we're going to be doing hopefully a bit of a playbook on how to build your culture in a gaming studio. And the aim is if you're a gaming professional, you lead people or you're an aspiring gaming professional, I'm hoping you'll get a few golden nuggets and takeaways. This is also being done live. So if you are live, please say hello in the chat and we'll be doing a Q&A at the end so you can ask as many questions as you want to Callum and we'll get to as many as possible. So a quick introduction on me. So I'm Harry. I work at Evolution Recruitment Gaming. We're a tech and recruitment company. I'm in the gaming team. We pretty much only do contract recruitment. We do these events to basically give as much value and hopefully you don't forget about us when you need a contractor. That is literally my job pretty much. So I will get straight into it and go to you, Callum. So Callum, quick elevator pitch. Who is Callum Godfrey? Cool. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Firstly, pleasure to be here. So I'm hoping that we can uh, drop some truth bombs and nuggets of knowledge on people today and have a good chat about culture and why it's so important. Um, For me, I've been making video games since 1999. uh, So that's what, 24 years or so now. Um, A career of two halves, I like to think of it. So I started in PC console AAA space at Codemasters, Activision, and working on big blockbuster franchises for those guys. And about 11, 12 years ago, switched into free-to-play on browser games at Facebook or with Facebook while I was working for EA. Uh, Then mobile stuff at King, and I've been in mobile since then. So I've kind of covered the breadth and depth of the games industry in terms of different platforms, different business model types. Um, and I guess the the sort of main area I've focused on over that time is production and product management. So uh, I'm a guy who I think is pretty good at sorting out a project plan, building a vision for a game and so on. Um, but I guess the, the sort of end statement I like to use these days is that I'm not the guy who's going to come to you with a seed of an idea that becomes a billion dollar franchise. I'm more the operations guy. I'm the guy who's going to create a field for you to plant seeds in. Uh, and culture is a huge part of that, right? It's about creating this opportunity for different opportunities or different products to sort of live inside this virtual metaphorical field that I'm creating for other people to come along and plant their seeds in. <laughs> Amazing. I love the analogies. No, fantastic. And yeah, you have done it once or 12 times from the sound of it. Like I've been posting yeah. about like, you've collected the infinity stones at least when it comes to uk gaming studios <laughs> i love the fact that you've done microsoft activision king separately and now they're all one company i know right and like, i still have shares in each of them somewhere so you know you're spending your time with me you're probably balling as well <laughs> well you know when, when we finish this call i'm going to get on my uh, my uh, jet stream and just fly off to uh fly off to that expensive <laughs> No, you wouldn't because you love to work. That's true, actually. I'm getting ready for work on Monday. Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading-edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Amazing. Great. Um, Lovely. And if anyone's watching live, as you can see, I'm highlighting people in the chat, so we will get to your questions. Feel free to get them in as they come to you. And if you're able to stay at the end, I will be highlighting them. But yeah, it looks like we have a great turnout. So let's get straight into it. This is going to be a bit of a conversational format. I don't have a kind of list of questions. We're going to get into it and see where it takes us. So 
first question, which I think will be a nice opener, is when it comes to culture in the gaming studios, what is your rocket ship analogy? Cool. Right. So when we talk about culture and how it sort of helps teams to work more, more efficiently, more productively, I want to remind people that my background is very much game production. One of the things that really motivates and excites me is helping teams be more productive. I look at production as the art of productivity rather than producing a product. Um, so when you have a great culture, it's this wonderful like jet fuel that you inject into your team to help them do things faster, do things better, do things better because they're working more cohesively as a team. Their shared understanding of what they're doing is much, much stronger. So when I talk about the, the rocket ship analogy, you know, it's really about making sure that the team has fuel in the tank. Uh, so they can go and uh, and make these great products and work more efficiently. But also the point of building the rocket ship is you have to have somewhere you want to go. And um, when we're going to talk about culture today, Harry, a couple of things I really want to touch on are the idea that culture without having a goal or a thing you're aiming towards is, is kind of pointless. Without knowing what you want to achieve, you could build a culture that's wrong for your goal, or you could build a culture that actually um, is is counter counteracting against your goal, the thing you want to actually end up achieving. So the two things in my mind are very much um, uh, uh, in parallel with each other. You have to have a great goal and a great culture that supports that. Otherwise, you don't really get the benefits of either. Um, so when, when I talk about culture and, and sort of the, the 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 sort of visions and mission statements, think about that as the analogy, right? The the rocket ship wants to fly to the place your business wants to get to, and culture is the fuel in the tank of the rocket ship that helps you get there. With you, so you can spend all your money on the rocket fuel, but then when you come to the actual day where you're going to fly, if you have a very bad rocket ship, that was a very bad investment. Even exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. And I think there's a few misnomers around what culture is. I think. Um, perhaps it's more sort of my perception, but I get the feeling that when people talk about culture, they think about things like, you know, how many free different fruits and stuff you have to get in the can in the canteen, you know, uh, how many duvet days you give away as a company. They think about things like the perks, the things that make the, uh, or the things you can use to like um, put, it, put in bullet points in a HR job description that says, hey, we're a great company because X. I think a lot of people confuse that with culture. Whereas for me, culture is really, the, the way humans interact with humans and the sort of framework that defines how you want that interaction to look like. Um, so I, I always think about culture as, as, I guess, the way that we as people interact and interoperate with each other and how we can use each other to help achieve our goals better rather than, you know, do we have five different types of almond butter in the fridge today? You know, that, that kind yeah. of culture thing, I think, is a misnomer that people get hung up on. Um, so we, I think we want to try and steer more towards the human interaction side today rather than the, you know, silly little perks and quirks that come with working for cool companies yeah i mean i love having free fruit it just saves me money oh. but when i think about the amazing atmosphere of evolution i usually don't go straight to you know the types of butter and coffee machines that we have right I yeah think they're just nice to have and if that's all you're talking about on your job description probably yeah, I, I, these things are nice to have, but I, I think that the, they, they really only add value if the culture of the company and the vision, the mission statement the company's trying to achieve really exist. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of use a, a, an example back from my previous previous career to sort of help explain how mission and, and culture have to align for there to be like this really strong feeling of energized productivity. Um, so when I was when I was first getting into mobile free to play, I was working for King before the Activision acquisition had taken place, um, and I got to say that period in time, 2014 to 2016, King is probably, as I look back on it, the best period of work I've ever had in my career in terms of feeling like I was doing stuff that was great. I was energized. I went to work every day for that sort of 18 month, two year period, buzzed and excited to go and do stuff. 
And that was because we as a company, King as a company, had this goal of a, a network of a billion players. It was this big mission statement that Ricardo, the CEO, would stand up and talk about at all hands meetings and town halls. And we as a company all kind of knew how we contributed to that big picture goal, whether it was about retaining players inside the big franchises like Candy Crush and Farm Heroes to keep the network growing, whether it's about making exciting new games that appeal to new audiences to help bring in new players to reach that billion billion player total. Like it was a really exciting time to work there because we knew what we were doing. And the culture of King, as in, as installed by the team leaders and by the, the the teams themselves, was always aligned towards trying to hit that goal. And it was fantastic. We we came to work. We were buzzed. We were psyched. We would talk about like how we're going to achieve this, why our goal fit that, or why our individual team goals fit the big picture goal. And it was just really fun. Like that dynamic was really really exciting. Then sort of as the Activision acquisition became a thing, the culture sort of, I guess the day-to-day -day thing that people think is culture of the company didn't change. We still have the same ways of treating each other as human beings. We still have the same fruits in the kitchen, to use that bad example. You know, the, the, the material things that we did day-to-day -day didn't change. But it felt like because the big picture goal of King was now morphed into the big picture goal of Activision with its first mobile acquisition, the day-to-day -day, day -day work that we were doing didn't feel like it was actually aligned to a big picture goal. So I know for myself in sort of 2016 or 2015, 2016, around the time the acquisition started to happen, um, a lot of us became a little bit frustrated, even though the company was still a great place to work. You still got treated very nicely. The, the inclusivity, the sort of the breadth of people inside King's employee workforce is fantastic. But because the work was no longer aligned to a clearly articulated, tangible goal for us as the first mobile entity for Activision, I would go to work and I'd feel a little bit like, well, what's the point? What am I working towards? How do I know if I'm successful? And this is, this is where I think it's a really great example that when it was aligned, the vision and the culture were really, really great together. And the vision changed uh, when the Activision acquisition happened. Not massively. Like it wasn't suddenly like, hey, King, you're going to go and do random crazy stuff. It was still very, very similar. But there was just that slight change in the way it was articulated. There was a bit more uncertainty around what it meant. Activision and King were still sort of feeling each other out to really understand how that relationship was going to work. And I guess during that sort of 12 month period before I decided to leave, um, I felt a lot of uncertainty. I felt like even though the the day-to-day -day way I was doing my work hadn't changed from you know X weeks ago when we were still in, still active, uh, still King, sorry, um, I felt less productive. I felt less like the stuff I was doing was adding value or having an impact that was at the company level. And it, I know I wasn't alone in that point of, of sort of feeling like that forced me to go and look for work elsewhere where I thought I could have mm. that alignment and that impact. And I, and I know um, from talking to friends who still work at King, they've very much kind of course corrected that since I left and it's become a, a very great place to work again. But uh, for anybody who's listening, like make sure your mission and your culture are supportive of each other, because when it isn't, you have staff churn, you have slower production, you have essentially wasted time and wasted money, and nobody wants to waste time or money. Wow. I think there's a very hopeful thing that came out of that story, because it's like, it sounded like they have so many other puzzle pieces, but then just because one thing was missing, that led to, you know, that the negatives, right? The churn. But I think... The fact that they have course corrected just goes to show. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's an interesting thing as well that different parts of companies or as companies get bigger, different parts of companies get affected by culture in different ways. For myself at King at that period in time, I was working very much on new IP discovery, looking for new game ideas, new market opportunities. And Activision had bought King because they had these great franchises, you know, Candy Crush and Farm Heroes and so on, that were making huge, huge, huge multi-million dollar day revenue streams for the company. Um, and, the, and the new IP piece felt a little bit like 
as Activision came in, that was a bit less certain and a bit less clear what we were supposed to do with it. The culture inside parts of King where they were focused on the franchises or the IPs was much less affected by this. Um, so I think for, for the people who were in the London studio working on Farm Heroes, they probably felt less affected by the, the culture, by the, the, the goal change or lack of a goal than myself or people working on the new IPs that we were investing in for things like Shuffle Cats that got launched or some of the games that we were working on that never got launched because that new IP stream of the business didn't really have a, a tangible identity or goal that it was trying to work towards. Yeah, I think a bit of a shiny object syndrome because when you have all this new IP that could be mobile, mm. like we could put all that money in but what if, and then that happens yeah. halfway through. Yeah, and I think the, the, the new IP thing as well for mobile is kind of interesting from a culture perspective in that if I were building a studio today, I would be trying to find people who are very much passionate and driven around trying to find those interesting new opportunities. Mobile has quite quite strongly, I think, since the since Apple took away IDFA and we lost the ability to do targeted marketing quite as well as we used to be able to. It's become much more of a sea of safe bets um, so people now are doing, you know, clones of games that have already been successful. Yeah. In fact, I mean, let's be honest, you know, uh, uh, Dream Games have got uh, a royal match out there and they've got uh, Kingdom Royale, their sort of second game, uh, which is coming along, which is basically a reskin of their first game with a couple of like additional meta tweaks. We're at the point now where we're copying our own games inside our same companies to sort of try and generate extra franchise revenue or extra franchise growth. So if I were looking for a, a, a team to start up today, culture wise, I'd be looking for people who don't mind like trying a few out of the, out of the box things, people who really want to go and just try and do something different, interesting and new uh, and try and stand out as much as possible because the, the industry kind of needs a few innovators, I think at the moment. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you are that person who does innovate and then win loads of rewards, because I think you would yeah. one of the very few. Yeah. I think it's one of the things Supercell as a company has done so, so well over the course of its history. Like it, it doesn't just sit back on its laurels and go, Oh, let's do clash of clans too. Let's just reskin this. They, they, they genuinely seem to want to innovate and create new products on mobile. And I think innovation on mobile has become, I think from a business sense, seen as culturally something of a dirty word. We don't, we don't hear innovation talked about in company mission statements for mobile companies anywhere near as much as we do for AAA and PC console companies, which again, I think talks to the, the culture and the business of goals aligning. Mobile is much more of a, I think, a business-oriented product, um, you know, with product managers and in-app purchases. It's a, it's a lot more eco- economically business-minded rather than um, uh, AAA, PC console, or I guess boxed product boxed in sort of digital air quotes kind of sense um box product games don't really have to rely on that in-game economy so much um so they they tend to work in a very different way from uh from free-to-play mobile ones in terms of innovation they have to innovate to stand out from the crowd whereas in mobile people actually like a little bit of comfort they like things feeling a little bit similar um when we're doing player personas we start to think about you know players of a certain type behaving a certain way so we can make generalized term or generalized thinking for how players are going to react to our products um, and I think that the two different business models uh, require two different cultural approaches as well. For sure. And I agree with you. Like the mobile gaming scene is completely different with PC. And I think the amount of money involved in mobile games, I think, and the fact that you can measure so many things like more relative to like the boxed version, that kind yeah. of leads to more safe bets. And I think it's very cool to have companies like Supercell where it feels like it's in their DNA to innovate. And I think if you want to be around in the long term you kind of have to and if you're not yeah. doing it yeah you might make more reskins and you'll probably be fine for a few years but yeah definitely if any other massive shifts happen then yeah you might not be as resilient Alrighty, 
So, Callum, I want to get straight into brass tacks and get some practical insights here. So in terms of the, like we're in a fast paced industry, things are constantly changing. And I wanted to see if you could bring it to a list of three qualities you can't compromise when you're actually assembling a team. Yeah, I mean, there's probably about a thousand that we could really go into. But top three, if I had to narrow it down, I guess I'll start with a bit of like paraphrasing from my old my old mum. She used to say, don't go shopping on an empty stomach, um, <laughs> which which is a great phrase. Like when you're in a shopping, uh, when you're in a shopping center uh, and you're hungry, you'll buy stuff you don't really need or you'll start to feel kind of a desperation to want mm. to satisfy that hunger. I look at um, building teams and, and hiring people in a similar way when it comes to culture fit and team mentality. Um, so what I mean by that is don't say yes to hiring a candidate just because you're desperate to fill a role, right? That's where the sort of feeding on an empty stomach sort of parallel comes in. Every time I've had a, a role that's been open for a significant period of time and I've made what I call a, a compromise to bring a candidate in, um, I've usually ended up living to regret that, whether it's, you know, in three months mm. time because they haven't passed the probation uh, or in a year's time because they've created a counterculture or they've worked against the culture I've been trying to establish. Um, it's it's one of the things I think that in hindsight, if I could go back and you know teleport back through time and stop a few key moments in my career from happening, it would be around saying yes to candidates who were great technically, great in terms of the skill set, um, probably not bad culture fit because they wouldn't have got through to final interviews if they were totally wrong, but just told myself to trust my gut and say no. Um, because when you've spent so much time and effort trying to build a strong culture, bringing in a candidate whose culture fit slightly perverts that or warps that or takes it in a slightly different direction than what you need it to be to align to the business goals, it can be incredibly detrimental to the productivity of the team, to the uh, to the, the health of the team, um, to, the, to the business goal itself. And making those compromises, I think, is definitely the top thing I would advise myself and anybody who's listening to not do. Trust your gut if you have spidey sense tingles that say, don't hire this person for culture fit. A culture fit is actually, to me, more important than being 100% the best qualified candidate for that job with their technical skills mm. and their background. So I feel like, number one, the, the culture fit is such a crucial part. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like we not looking for a culture fit per se we're looking for like a culture ad like if there's a yeah. potential where the person is going to be okay but there might be an issue where there's a candidate who's literally a culture ad is going to come in there bring energy mm -hmm. they've clearly done it before like that's 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 the person you want exactly and if you can afford to wait do exactly because if they're a culture ad that's just more fuel in your rocket ship right you can fly further you can fly faster so uh yeah, yeah. whereas uh i guess the, the the inverse of that would be putting a hole in your fuel tank and you start to leak culture fuel out of the uh, out of the rocket ship and may not ever get to your goal. There you go. And you might not find out until you've actually blasted off. If I want to keep going with the analogy. Like. Until the fuel <laughs> catches fire and your rocket ship's exploded, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, oh, why did that happen? And then you have to go through diagnostics. Did you hide that guy or that girl or that person? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. So All right. So second tip. Um, so I, I guess for me, the, the, the most important period of time when you're building a team is those first couple of days, those first couple of weeks when someone's fresh mm. inside the company. Um, so, but I, I also look at like the, the onboarding process of starting before that. It starts when you're actually interviewing. So if you've decided to bring a candidate in for an interview, whether it's face-to-face -face or digitally, whatever, the point where you're engaging with another human being on a person-to-person -person level, 
that's where that's where the, the I guess the retention curve for that employee really starts, right? If you can create a good first impression with the interviews, not just as the candidate, but as the employer as well, I think that's really, really powerful. Um, and that that for me kind of then carries on to those first few days and first few weeks inside the company. So um, the, the the best companies I've worked for have had this really solid onboarding process. And you get in on day one and there's no ambiguity. You don't know what you're supposed to, you don't know, uh, sorry, it's all planned out for you, what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to talk to. There's a goals document that's written. Uh, and this is one of the things I've really pushed on during my career is if those companies don't have it, I'll write my own for my new hires. Like, hey, here's a list of who you should talk to. Here's why you should talk to them. Here's where you find this. I always create those kind of cheat sheet, quick start guides for onboarding. Because um, the jobs I've found that I've been least likely to stay at or the ones where I've had the least satisfaction and left earlier are the ones where, if I look back, you can see a 100% correlation where on my day one, I'm kind of sat there going, so you gave me a computer and a login. What am I supposed to do with this now? Like, who do I talk to? What do I start with? And I guess the more senior you get in terms of you know, your experience in a company, you're usually reporting into more senior people who don't have time to sort of go through and do this stuff. But I think make the time. If you care enough to bring that person into your business, give them the best possible impression of that business uh, and make sure you give them the, the benefit of your experience of the company, help them understand what their value they're adding is and really take the, the job spec on paper they've signed up to do and turn it into a tangible thing in the first few days for them so they can understand how they add value. Um, I want to sort of talk about the flip side, the inverse of that. I think the shortest time I've stayed in a job before I handed in my notice was three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. I joined a company um, during the pandemic, actually. I was uh, I was uh, doing work as, uh, I guess, head of production was my actual title for Savage Game Studios. Um, and at the end of week one, one of the co-founders had asked me to help get rid of another co-founder. And if I did, I could have his, his founder shares in the company. Um, I sat in a meeting with three of the four founders, uh, asked them who owned the game vision and two of the founders pointed at each other and said he does at the same time no. um <laughs> yeah which is a bit of a red flag right when you're thinking about you know what you're building who's in number, charge of this. number one hmm. yeah like know what you're building right the the, the the whole point of the mission statement you have a goal you want to aim for so uh, and then they would have arguments around what kind of culture they wanted the studio to have even though they couldn't agree what game they were making who owned it and so on um, I remember one of the founders talked about the Netflix uh, No Rules Rules book as a culture sort of template. Hmm. Um, they were like, cool, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, but no idea how to implement it, how to actually put culture into a studio. Um, so that was probably the the best example of me realizing quite quickly that this was not a place I was going to be comfortable because I actually enjoy a place where productivity is at the heart of what we do. That buzz, that yeah. excitement, that energy of feeling productive is really my main motivating force. Um, so like I say, after three weeks, I decided to hand the notice in. Um, and what I find ironic with that is that the the people who ran that studio, two of them actually give podcast talks and are quite well known in the industry for being culture gurus and great leaders. Um, and that studio then got acquired by, by a first party. And those two people were actually fired, but they're still out there talking about culture. So this is why I was very excited when you spoke to me about doing this, this chat, Harry, because it's really important to me to represent what culture really means rather than just using it as mm. a buzzword thing to make me as an individual look cool i don't care if i look cool i look like the live action version of mr potato head for those who haven't seen my face before um i just want to help make great games help other people make great games and help other people avoid the mistakes and pitfalls that have, have plagued my career at certain points no and i 100 i appreciate that i mean i've had first-hand experience i know shimmy is actually in the chat today and he told me Hi, like, yeah the uh, so shimmy was a contractor working for uh, Callum at one of the studios he was uh, previously. And he, when I had my first week check-in, he did say like the onboarding experience was so smooth and had that from both contractors. And it goes to show, I think when you start strong, it feels like I don't know, you just deposited into that goodwill bank 
and when you want to start with as much goodwill as possible and like you said absolutely absolutely start from the interview process yeah, and, and I think to, the, to that point about the goodwill currency, Harry, I think that if you look at, yeah, I can make a parallel between sort of mobile games here with like the retention curve mm, of players do. drop off. And I think the, the higher the higher your goodwill on day one, like the better the retention of that staff member will be over time. They will stay in that company longer. Um, if you build the goodwill early, the first impressions make very, very long impacts. If you do screw something up later or you make a mistake or things don't go to plan, the, the employees you've treated well from day one or made to feel part of the team from day one will be more likely to stay around than those who who perhaps haven't been in that same situation they're more likely to leave um and this brings me i guess to my third and final point to sort of finally in a waffling callum style get to it we're going we're um, getting there don't worry it's, it's around i guess communication and feedback um hmm. i think the most important thing that we as human beings can do from a culture point of view is to talk to each other and i think in in recent years with the pandemic and remote working um, it has become more difficult to build those personal connections with people to create these these opportunities to talk to each other openly and frankly. Um, but it's worth investing in that regards whether you're hybrid, remote or co-located, whatever your sort of working model might be. Communication and asking for feedback, I think, is the most valuable thing you can do once the team is in place. Um, and I don't just mean like, you know, hey, chat to each other around the water cooler and like, ask how your day was. I actually mean talk to each other about the work they're doing. Get mm. peer feedback from others. Is this is this good? Is it bad? What could I do better to make this, uh, make this uh, a better version of itself? I, I have this kind of mantra that I always tell myself that, um, back when I was a producer and a project manager um, is don't just dole out tasks. Your job as a, as, a, as a leader inside a company or inside a team is not to be the person who's just feeding more work to people. You should be hiring people who and empowering them to really understand, I know the work I've got to do. I know the goal mm. I've got to hit. Your job as a leader then really is to encourage the, encourage the leads to have active conversations around whether or not they're actually delivering the things they need to be delivering, if they've got any blockers, any challenges, any problems. Um, if I, I kind of look at the, um, the sort of hierarchy of me perhaps as like a head of a department or head of a studio or something, and then kind of leads running different projects, in some ways, and apologies if any of them are on the call, they're kind of canaries in the coal mine for culture. Um, I expect the leads on the teams to be the first people to tell me like, hey, we've got a problem in this part of the business. The culture's not working. Okay, cool. But what are you doing to try and fix that? What conversations are you having with the people who are perhaps affecting the culture to try and rectify this? Because communication, I think, is the most important thing. And one of, one of the things I will stress as well is that when I talk about communication, I think that whatever size of organization you live, uh, you work within, People at the top of the organization have to communicate the the, the sort of big uh, big picture goals to the company or uh, the sort of the, the updates against the progress and plans for the company uh, company wide. The companies I have enjoyed working for most, as I said before, places like King, every month, Ricardo, the CEO, would stand up and give a town hall where he'd talk about the performance of all our games, what's new, what's happening. Um, you know, it, it was really sort of fun to see those things, you know, to feel like you're collectively part of this much bigger machine that's doing awesome things and it's trying so many great things. The companies where I felt the most um, at, at unease are the ones where there isn't really that communication flow from top to bottom of the company. You don't really understand what the company's doing, where it's going and so on. So I, I, always, adv I always advise people who are um, setting up studios or people who want to sort of um, uh, become a leadership uh, type role in the industry is to practice just giving really good verbal updates around what's happening, present stuff to people. Um, in fact, I think, it was, I think it was Adam Parsons, an old colleague of mine who once said, 
whenever someone asks you to do some work, always do it in a Microsoft PowerPoint because at some point, some a-hole is going to ask you to present it, um, <laughs> which, is, which is actually a great tip because I've made so many Microsoft PowerPoint presentations, or I guess Google Slides now over the years. It's my default working format is to use that because at some point I can just basically steal it and turn it into a presentation uh, to, to show to other people. And I think the power of the power of doing these kind of big communication pieces that it gets people in the same boat. It realigns them. It lets them see what's happening uh, across the rest of the business. And companies where they don't do that um, are ones where I think people people tend to make their own stories in a vacuum of news. Right. Um, great example being my my last uh, or one of my previous employers, Quali. They have this culture very much built around hyper and hybrid casual, which is great. Like Simon Brown, if you ever get the chance to work with him, anybody, he is fantastic. The culture of Quali was basically Simon loves making games and he's awesome at it. And the culture was built around him. As we then bolted on PC console and casual and midcore and other kind of game genre types, the culture didn't really stretch in this kind of creative Wednesday format that Simon did that worked really well for hyper casual, mm. where the whole hyper casual and hybrid casual teams would get together and discuss new ideas, new game things, new updates on performance of their games. That worked really well for that part of the company, but didn't scale to the rest of the company. And there wasn't really the appetite to try and do these town hall kind of stand up meetings for, for, I guess, general company progress. And you'd go out to, lunch or dinner and chat to other employees and people would talk in the absence of information they'd be like why is it we never hear how the company's doing why is it we never hear about the sales results from our games why do we never talk about the revenue we're making and so on and i think it's better to get out in front of that and own the narrative and talk about it even if sometimes it's not good news i think it's better to be honest and be open about the the bad news um and yeah just be as transparent as possible um because people without that information will just jump to the worst possible conclusions and that, that's certainly my experience over the last few years that people without it just assume the worst and start looking for new jobs or start spreading malicious gossip or things that aren't true. So yeah, just be open and transparent and communicate those things with people. No, for sure. And it sounds like there was like a bit of a like founder led culture and yeah, you can't just copy paste that to different teams. Right. I think you need to have a really conscious, I think it comes back to like the reason we're having this conversation, like the, takes yeah. conscious actions from someone yeah. who's hopefully done it before if you're doing it at scale um and yeah you can't yeah it's, bananas isn't the solution <laughs> yeah well <laughs> i guess it comes back to the point as well about the the goal and the culture have to work together when quali hmm. was a hyper casual only studio the culture that simon had brilliantly and i love i love simon he's such a smart guy he had built this culture around, you know, creativity, innovation, failing fast. And the updates of the weekly update for, for the quality were all about that. And that was great. It just, the company as it grew, never figured out a way to scale or to, or to scale communication. So it become a multifaceted business. It didn't know how to communicate PC console updates, how to communicate casual updates. There wasn't really a forum for it or an appetite even to create that forum. Um, so I think that's where it really struggled. So Simon did a great job. Just, it was never really his job to then figure out how to communicate that company wide fair no and i think to close off on that like i've written down we when hiring looking for culture ads not anything really less because you will live to regret it and the other two are uh great onboarding and then what comes after great communication and one thing i wanted to say as well like there's a tendency i feel where everything needs to be done live on a virtual sorry on a like a all hands on teams meeting or an all hands on slack huddle and i think there's just from the outside looking in i know there's only a couple of studios doing it and i think more could it's just asynchronous versions of that of videos like a loom update once a week 
or even asynchronous by text, a select Slack channel, which is like, here's key updates and decisions that are happening. People can reply. And I think what you said earlier, with the absence of that, people will come up with their own thing. And then they start talking about it. And then it gets actually big, big, big. And mm-hmm. then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people are feeling like things are going one way, then their actions will, I feel, do that. But if you're spreading the good vibes, or even if you're coming at it, like you said, Basically. from a going up, we're, we're here, we need to go there, then at least people will be making those decisions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I 100% think that's something that you could put in today. That's free. <laughs> like yeah. most people can <laughs> start that. So that's one thing, 100%. Um, fantastic. So a bit more on the practical side. So fast communication, I mm. feel, is key in gaming, especially after the pandemic, like you said. There's a lot less that will happen through osmosis, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's um, the modern toolkit where you have Slack. Some people have Teams. Some people have all three. They use emails. They're using... So yeah, just in terms of Practically, how do you encourage? Um, I'm guessing this is from a top-down perspective, uh, proactive, you know, fast communication. Sure, sure. I, I guess the. I mean, there are so many tools out there now, as you mentioned, Harry. You know, Slack, Teams. Back in my day, it was MSN Messenger, and like there, there were <laughs> loads of different things we would use to try and. Chat. No, you didn't. No one used MSN Messenger in a gaming studio. I don't believe. Uh, I can tell you, at Codemasters in 2002 to 2005, we used MSN Messenger. Matt, um, I was flirting <laughs> with my high school friends MSN Messenger while people were using it. I, when I had custom emojis and everything. That is. Mad. I, had, I had a MySpace page back then as well, mate. That's how long ago this was. Um, but nowadays, with so many different tools out there, I think people people think that communication is about just slapping something into a Slack channel or slapping something into an email and like that's communication done. I've done my part. Mm. Um, it's they forget that communication is about actually saying something and people listening and understanding that and creating opportunities to have discussions. So I have a couple of like I guess top tips or rules, which is that Slack is great for sharing updates. But please never use Slack as a place where you make decisions about things. Mm. Always, always take the information that's in Slack, get the right people into a conference call or into a meeting room to have a discussion about this. Because Slack, much like, you know, when someone posts on a forum, like you can lose the nuance of what's actually meant through things in Slack. Um, you can get a little bit data blind by just looking at a wall of text. And even though it might take you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, a little bit longer than just reading something in Slack and putting a green tick emoji on it and going, cool, done, let's do this. Take the time to make sure you understand the impact of the decisions you're choosing to make. Uh, and let Slack be a great information tool, but not a place not a place where you decide things. I always I, I made this analogy when I was working at Zepto Lab with one of the guys there that uh, I like to think of Slack as kind of the the jury. Sorry, Slack as the um, as the uh, solicitors or lawyers in a courtroom mm. in cases for an argument. But then it's up to the jury to convene to decide what to do with that information. Right? They yes. they don't they they get together and they discuss these things. Um, I just think she makes comment on Skype for communication. Cool. Remember <laughs> <laughs> those days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you make sure you use Slack for the right things. Use the right tools for the right kind of communications, I guess, is, is I guess tip number one. And number two is don't create barriers for communication. Um, I think if I think back to King again, and I'm sorry to keep talking about King as this great example, Ricardo, the CEO, who I've realized I now have a bit of a man crush on, um, <laughs> more hands, and it would talk about anything and everything. He'd take Q&As at the end of this, right? It was a really, really open, uh, transparent way of doing business. And then other companies I've worked at, they had this kind of like, uh, I guess, um, waterfall model where... Mm. Person in department A would brief his direct reports in department B and C. They would then be expected to talk to their direct reports in departments C, D, and E and so on. And there's supposed to be this cascade of information out across the business. But 
there was no need for that information to cascade through direct reports. It could have all been stuff that was done in a, in a company-wide meeting or a company-wide forum. Um, and I don't like that kind of chain of command style rollout for communication. I think everybody in the company should be entitled to have an opinion on the things they're doing and create an atmosphere, create a culture where those, those things can be challenged. Um, one of the things that I, I've really enjoyed about some of the smaller companies I've worked for is these, these forums or these all-hand meetings where the CEO or the head of the studio or whoever stands up and says, hey, we're doing this thing. And somebody who's been in the company for three weeks puts their hands up and goes, hey, do you mind if I ask about this? Great. Yes, please do. Um, for anyone who is on uh, is on the stream right now or who listens to this later, who's worked with me, they'll know I'm always about asking for feedback. You know, what do we do differently? What can we do next? What what, what can we change? Um, and I love getting that feedback through from people. So to see that happening in a live environment sometimes is wonderful. And then it, it, it when the CEO or the person giving the presentation reacts to that in a positive way, it gives confirmation to the rest of the company that, yeah, it's cool to question. It's cool to assume I don't have all the answers. It's cool to assume that you're safe. You're in a safe space to ask these questions. And that's just a wonderful space to be. 100%. And I feel like in a gaming studio, especially over the last year, there is a lot of work by less people now. And I think it's a very big and bad assumption to make that your current processes are good enough. Because I feel like as time goes on, they just rot. And yeah. one big part of that is I think on the onboarding, if I could bring that back there, it's just on the fact that hundred percent what you've just said, if the if someone three weeks in is asking a question, awesome. We can now put that as part of onboarding and we need to reward that. I'd say even make it a requirement. If you don't yeah. improve onboarding within four weeks, you're not asking enough questions. Like if you have that kind of environment, so many improvements. Cause I feel like, yes, people do exit interviews, but like if you're just really proactive with all of this stuff, like, there's yeah. so many just micro benefits which start compounding and then you have an atmosphere where people want to add to the documentation because yeah. they're actually getting rewarded for it rather than punished. Like, why haven't you done your work on time? It's like, well, I've got a thousand things to do and I think if you yeah. keep rewarding it and yeah, just keep it to the principle. It's actually a really good point when you talk about the exit interview thing as well, Harry. I mean, I'm sure because you work in recruitment, you'll have heard stories from people you've got as candidates who talk about reasons why they left companies. Yeah. And there's a lot of commonality that comes through this. Um, I left because of reason X. And you'll hear reason X many, many times from different people across different companies. And one of the things I've found culturally that we as a business have tended to do in games now is wait until we have a groundswell of like, employees saying oh this is a problem before we start to act on it like it has to reach a tipping point where it's become dangerous to the culture to start acting on it at a company yeah, in public some people like, plans in the place to fix it i was sorry I, was, I interrupted there but i was just saying sometimes they wait until it's public on glass door i'm like yeah what are you doing? this could all be avoided yeah and, and like you say you know communication right what's well, it's, it's it's about making studios communicate talk more share more if we know these things internally don't wait until the fire is out of control to start trying to put it out try and deal with it while it's just a small little tinder and you can hopefully just put it out with as minimal effort as possible. Yeah. And I think it's surprising that there's, I feel like there's only a few people who could actually make that change in a studio. Like I think you really need to match up incentives because if you're not incentivized, then you need to be a Callum Godfrey where you're looking at holistically the entire studio where I think if you're assuming everyone's going to do that, why were you doing yeah. that? Just to massage people and incentivize people to buy it early. While we're thinking about sort of those those remedial actions that people can take to try and help improve culture and listening to employees as well, I, I feel remiss if we're having this chat about culture and didn't talk about some of the ways we as an industry tend to measure culture, um, where we tend to do like employee engagement surveys or we send out these kind of like quarterly health checks on employees. And yeah. 
I'll be honest, I don't think they're a particularly effective tool. Um, oftentimes, no matter how many times the HR department or whoever says it's anonymous, a lot of people don't trust that it's anonymous. Yeah. Uh, participation rate is often quite low. Um, and one of the things I found, particularly actually in AAA rather than rather than mobile, um, was that people would, when you, one of the questions people measure it on is like, you know, how likely are you to leave the company in the next 12 months? Right? That's one of the classic <laughs> questions for measuring employees. I find that funny. <laughs> I find that really hilarious, right? Because... I know so many people, particularly working on big AAA games, where they're like, oh, I hate working for this company. It's crunch time. It's terrible. The culture's bad. But I love <laughs> the game. So they're not going to leave for the next 12 months because their game is uh, not going to ship yeah. for three years. And HR used that measurement as a way to say, we're doing a great job. Look at us. We're awesome. But yeah. they're, they're completely missing the wood for the trees. The reason that person's staying isn't because the company's great. It's because they love the product. And they probably have that gallows kind of mentality with their, their, uh, their colleagues as well, where they all feel the same sort of resentment and bitterness. But they're in it together because they've kind of made their own culture within the studio uh, and the data we use to measure employee satisfaction and employee happiness or measure i guess how effective our culture is for me it doesn't work as, a, as an industry i think there's there's got to be better ways we can do this going forwards yeah i think it's a tool and there's nothing that's going to be conversations yeah one-on-one community and like you have time like you can make time for a one-to-one where you're asking these questions it's yeah really, should be part of the process and if your only tool for getting that is a survey, then you're in luck because you can instantly have an improvement done tomorrow if you want to look yep. at the bright side of things. Uh, so, yeah, 100%. Um, cool. Let's uh, move on to another very big topic, which is diversity. So hmm. diversity is massive for many reasons, which I could go on list, but I want to just get into a strategy. So I would ask, what is your one strategy if you're looking to make your studio more inclusive, increase the diversity, and potentially, once you've said that, why is it uh, important in your eyes? Cool. So 100%, just to get it on record, diversity is super, super important. The more diversity you have in your teams, the more different opinions you're going to have, the more different ways of thinking you're going to have, the more different opportunities you're going to have to explore, expand, grow and do things that you couldn't do on your own. Or if everybody was, if everybody is, sorry, if it was a studio of just Callum Godfrey's, the diversity would be quite low and we'd have a very fixed way of doing things. If I given that I'm quite OCD about things, it would be a very fixed way of doing things. <laughs> Um, I look at diversity actually in in a sort of strange way through the eyes of my kids. I have two mm. wonderful sons, both diagnosed with autism. Um, and it's wonderful to watch the innocence with which they view the world. They don't see race, gender, religion, age. They just treat people as they come. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're, a, I don't know, a man or a woman, if your background is Christian, Jewish, uh, Muslim, whatever it is, right? They just value you as a person and the interaction they're having with you at that particular moment. They live in the moment and judge people on that particular moment. Uh, and I think that I, I like to try and think of inclusivity and diversity in that way, right? Try and try and not think about the background behind the people uh, you're bringing in. It's really about can they do the job and can they add to your culture? Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of my, my top tip is like the culture piece when it comes to diversity is, is probably the most important. Making sure that the diversity you bring in, as you put it earlier, Harry, is a culture add right there. Does their diversity bring in different ways of thinking, different things you can do? Does it help make your culture stronger for the future? Um, and I think I know it's about building diversity, but I'd want to sort of inverse that slightly and say, if you start to spot individuals who are um, having an impact on the culture of your studio, move them out of the business negative impact places for them like you've got to protect the diversity and the culture you build and any anytime that starts to get threatened act quickly i can't tell mm. you the number of times in my career over the years i've you know had 
problems where I don't know an individual has made an offhand comment that was this incredibly not correct or incredibly toxic. Um, there's a, a fairly famous example from a from a company I worked at previously where there was a Slack channel of a bunch of guys who made some awful comments about a female employee, um, and and the CEO of that company basically when it was brought to his attention said, "Well, boys will be boys." So the next week I handed my notice in. I won't stay and work in a culture like that. Um, and I think that. I think that when we talk about diversity and inclusivity, it has to come from the top as well as the bottom, right? It has to it has to be a thing that you live and die by. Uh, and I've always had quite strong principles around this, which is why I was more than willing to to leave that company after this after this incident happened. Um, and I think that it's the onus is on all of us, but particularly the leadership, to make sure we all remember that diversity and inclusivity is not just a buzzword. It's not just something that looks great when we put it on a job spec. It's a way of living. It's a part of the culture. It's about bringing everybody and their skills and their backgrounds into the fold so we can all collectively make great progress together. Hmm. Could you expand a little on, I'm going to go straight to it, like, like, does diversity lead to like more money, more profits? Like, Is there a tactical benefit if you're literally like, a man or a woman and you're just like, I need to make more money. Diversity is good. Like, I guess, like, could you connect those dots? I, I'll be honest and say I have gaps in my knowledge here. I'm sure there are probably white papers and studies yeah. and all kinds of things that have proved. Yes, there probably is. Um, in my experience, I don't think I could hand on heart 100% certainly say yes, more diversity means you make more money. What I think it does mean though, is that you make better teams and the chances of a team making a better product because they have that diversity or because they're a better team is increased. So it doesn't necessarily correlate to more revenue directly, but it correlates, I guess, to better team harmony or better team experience collectively, which should lead to making more, uh, more interesting variable people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's the key variable where it's kind of going to boost whatever you already have. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. Like if you have a great team, and it's making great products, and that's making X amount of dollars. If you actually yeah. make, if it becomes more inclusive, chances are it'll be a better team, more harmony. Which, in theory, yeah. all things equal, more dollars. I guess um, on, that, on that point, Harry, the the diversity piece kind of ties back into the the communication piece and giving each other feedback from earlier. The more yeah. diverse your team is the more wider range of opinions, thoughts, and feedback you're going to get on the work for each other. And ultimately, yeah. the team should be the first reviewers of their own products, right? They should be peer reviewing each other's stuff and seeing if they still agree that the game they're making fits the mission they've got. Um, mm. And the more opinions you get from a diverse background, the better chance you have of catching things that, that I guess, a, a monolithic culture hey. wouldn't have, right? Like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's yeah. so key. Like, um, we've definitely have a very conscious thing in um, the Nordics to immediate. <clears throat> the Nordic team, team here at Evolution, where we're trying to get as many perspectives as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think I've seen time, time again, where it's come in handy. Like, it's very handy to have someone from Finland who works on a gaming team when we're talking to Finnish studios, because, like, we would have no idea about all these cultural things you yeah. keep in mind. Yeah. Like, and there's some of that stuff where you wouldn't even know when you actually do in the interviews. They just happen three months in. And, yeah, I think you lose that if you have a monolithic culture so yeah cool um all righty kind of touching on what we said earlier like it's a fast-paced industry mm. what is the secret to staying nimble so this is after you already established right you yeah i would like actually if we could speak to let's say a um hypothetical studio 10 years been making profits kind of now last couple of years being get, i guess more flat in terms of revenue growth like it's mm -hmm. working profits yeah. are there 
how do you stay nimble? Like, how do you avoid kind of becoming an IBM, for example? Like, how do you just keep how, keep going up? Cool. Right. So the I, I guess in this particular example, where we've got a company that has reached, a, I guess, a 10-year plateau, right? They've reached a 10-year stability point. Um, my two truisms that I've experienced throughout my career, um, and, and that bear in mind that career is AAA, PC, console, mobile, web, free-to-play, like it's covered a bit of everything, um, is, is ultimately that there are two things that work in every company I've seen. Number one, check yourself. Always check your assumptions with your players or with your with your customers, right? It doesn't apply just to video games. It applies to any, any walk of business. Um, so figure out what it is your customers want. I, I forget when I read this, right? But there was a great case study done in, uh, in a magazine many years ago about McDonald's and how they'd kind of reached that sort of like early 2000s, late 90s plateau. They'd kind of gotten to a certain size. And no matter how much they put themselves into new countries, into new territories or whatever. They kind of just couldn't quite reach the sort of same exponential growth they'd seen previously. And that was when they went to their customers and actually said, well, why don't you come to McDonald's as frequently? Or why don't you do this? And it was when they realized like they want more diversity in the menu. Burger and fries wasn't all they wanted now. Now you see a McDonald's and they have salads and, you know, stuff that I'd never even dreamt of. Well, 20 I years have focused to the culture as well. Like Japan, McDonald's is mad. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's crazy. Like the, the, the diversity again is really a big part of that, of that company culture now. Um, and, and I think that's what I think other companies in different industries should be doing as well. There's never been uh, a time in video game making where it's as easy as it is now to get feedback from your players on your products on mobile. There are great platforms like Playtest cloud and so on, where you can literally upload a build of your game target your user base, who's your, who's your um, preferred audience, run a test with 20 people. And in less than a day, you've got feedback with videos, annotations, screenshots of what they've done so you can learn from your players. Like it's a fantastic platform. On, on AAA, PC, console, VR, other platforms as well, there are other tools and other, other companies that offer similar services. So check yourself with your players. If we're talking about diversity and inclusivity, include the players in that conversation around your products. Make mm. sure they're one of the voices at the table because they're the, ultimately the people who are going to try and try and buy this or try and try and uh, be the people we have to try and convince them to spend money on this product, either up front or inside the app itself. And then the second one I would say is don't treat development and marketing like they're uh, like they're sort of enemies. The classic publishing model used to be, hey, development's made a game, throw it over the fence to marketing and let them go and sell it. That never, ever works successfully or never works optimally. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I can count on one hand the number of times where even recently I've seen companies do that. And that game has uh, that game has uh, been successful. It's literally one game I've seen in the last 10 years that's done that. And I think that was more because of the IP than it was actually because the uh, because of the strategy. Companies where marketing and development work closely together, they build their roadmaps in synergy. They really understand the effect of one on the other. Game companies where the development team listens to feedback from marketing about what the consumer's saying, uh, where they're listening to, I don't know, like a good example being in mobile where we use ads to try and drive people to watch our, uh, to play our games. Figuring out from your marketing department at what point in the advert did players click on it to go to the app store? Oh, that's a moment in the game that people find really exciting, interesting. What can we do to build around that, right? That, those kind of two-way yeah, conversations yeah. are really, really interesting. And I think that's how you stay nimble without having to change the shape and scope and size of your company too much. It's how you can stay nimble in what I think of as making the most of the tools you have today. 100%. And I think that comes after a couple painful conversations like i know of some examples where there's actually multiple marketing teams like for each country and then the development team is passing that on to x marketing team and then there's no synergy and potentially there's marketing 
strategy for one country and they're kind of the spearhead, but it's not official. And then, yeah, it just gets messy. And I feel mm-hmm. like what you've just said, like having human conversations. And yeah. if there's too many chefs in the kitchen, I feel like you need to get some ultimate responsibility um, to one slash two people. And yeah. 100% when it comes to development and marketing, like especially in the PT example, it blows my mind. Like you can have a three year cycle and you don't really know if you're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> like after two years in, it's like, <laughs> especially if you have like a golden bucket of money coming from a parent company, that's yeah. even crazier. Cause it's like, we just need a couple more years. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I think with, with those big sort of company examples where they're spending, you know, three, four, five years or more sometimes to make these, these massive blockbuster IPs, they have so many ways now that they can bring people in on NDAs or sort of beta tests or closed group tests where they can get feedback from people. And from the marketing point of view, like it's not like marketing aren't gathering data around these these big box products either. They'll measure the impressions that they get for, for trailers that get released. They'll measure the uh, sentiment analysis around people are saying online around these things. And I, I think a lot of times video game makers look at marketing as this sort of necessary evil that infects their Mm. vision. It's not like that's the voice of your customers. Listen to marketing because when they talk, they're talking as if they're your consumer. 100%. Like all in this together. I think we need to have that synergy. Lovely. So we will move to a QA and a soon. Um, I just have a couple uh, things for aspiring gaming professionals that may be listening. So in terms of someone new to the industry let's say they just joined or they're looking to join i'm sure you've had a lot of exposure Mm. to this so one to two ways like how do you um okay i'm going to take split this into two parts so the first part is if you are a gaming professional yeah what would you recommend to really hyper focus on because i feel like there's a lot of advice and some of it's conflicting so like what would you suggest someone to put their efforts in yeah so back when i first started in 1999 the industry had fewer specializations than now so you could kind of get in and just you get away with basically saying oh i'm a programmer i'm a designer i'm an artist right there was just more generic genericized roles than there is now so i think for people getting into the industry nowadays first and foremost understand what it is you want to do really understand the nuances of what it means to be a programmer now um and how do you do that you find people to talk to um so i would really recommend if you want to be a programmer or an artist or a game designer go and talk to people who do that or if you're in the company now and you're just you're or if you just joined a company or you're starting out in your career find other people in the company to talk about their experiences and have them tell you about the things that don't get written down in a job description the things that a game designer does um that aren't written down on the paper you know the things that kind of branch off of that economy design um or level design or different types of like subsets or subcategories of the discipline you're in so you can really understand that it's not just a mono uh mono path function that you're working in it's a branching path and there are different ways that your career can grow and develop um and then i'd say figure out um, which of those sounds most appealing to you, which aligns most to your personal values, because it's always better to do things you already like to do or have an interest in doing. Um, and then hustle, find mentors, groups of similar people, talk about these things, really build an understanding of who you are and where you want to go, um, rather than just being like, a, I guess, a, a boat caught in the, the, the whitewater rapids and letting your career get pushed along, basically dictated by other people or other forces. Own your own career, write your own story, right? Insert cliche here. 
Um, internships are also a great way to do this. A lot of companies now are offering really great internships. Like Especially best- recently, I've seen a lot of announcements, actually. Yeah, I mean, I guess during the the, the sort of uh, layoff apocalypse we've been through recently, a lot of companies are looking at internships as a, a cheap way to bring in some just brute muscle. And Take advantage. If, you're in, if, if it's useful for you, just take advantage, right? Yeah. Um, I like, I'll, I'll sort of name check here. Like, Quali did a great internship program. We had some fantastic interns that joined us through that. Um, so, yeah, like the, the right company with the right model for nurturing interns is a great place to start. I've also seen some companies, though, where they literally treat interns in that kind of cliched 1980s American sitcom way that they think of interns, where it's like, make the coffee and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, the, you, you Hopefully, you'll get a good vibe for the uh, for the internship program in the first couple of calls with the recruitment team. And if it feels like you're making coffee all day, don't stay. There's much yeah. more you can do in the games industry than make coffee, as much as coffee is important. <laughs> it is crucial, but not your sole use case um okay follow-up question if you are actually the person setting up internships you've mentioned you've been part of one that's been positive any tips there uh yeah if you're setting up if you're setting up the internships then i think internships often don't lead to full-time jobs or at least they're they're, they're not like a guaranteed placement for a full-time job at the end so you say um a percentage there like just to give me an idea Ooh, i guess it's tricky to say because it varies from studio to studio but i'd say probably a third of internships that i've personally been involved in have gone on to have full-time placements inside right. the company um and i don't know if that's indicative of the rest of the industry that's just my personal experience um but i think that one thing almost universally i've seen hr teams or hiring managers and so on do with interns is the internship finishes and they don't gather feedback on what they can do better for the next round of interns that come in um they they treat it very much like they've already got the process the interns come in they do a fixed piece of work it's more of a sort of like i guess a factory worker mentality they come in to do Mm. a thing and then they're out or shift workers or seasonal workers perhaps right fruit pickers in a field um i'd rather we sat and listened to the interns and said look you guys are the next generation of people in the games industry to that point i made earlier about how culture starts from that first impression if we if if for reasons we don't keep an intern on there's no role or whatever or there were three interns competing for one role we still want the feedback from the people who don't stay with us because they're going to help us get better at making that first impression and building that culture for later on. So again, always listen, always take feedback and try try and help future interns benefit from the experience of the current ones. 100%. And I think that's so important. Like, I'm just picturing now, if you had to pay someone to get those insights, it's like, oh, sorry, you want someone to come and work for you for next to nothing for six months and then mm-hmm. give you a report on their experience. Like you'd pay a stupid amount of money to get that insight, but you actually oh, yeah, you are you see a consultancy, you're looking at 30, 40 grand for a, like a, a report <laughs> on just, that. And you already have it. Just yeah. so, and, and it's better because it's actual practical rather than observed yeah, experience. Yeah. 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 So I love the fact that we've got a few tactics here um, where it is literally, you could implement that for free now. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, lovely. All righty. Um, final point before we move on to the questions that we've received so in terms of leveling up in your career Mm. i feel especially in the last 12 months there's been a lot of job movements i've seen it personally um about that process of i feel like it's a bit inevitable there are people who stay at a company for 10 years but it's just not typical anymore so if you are thinking about leveling up in your career making that transition what in your experience would be something to keep in mind 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, actually. And I, I'll be honest and transparent to you, Harry, and anyone who's listening to this. I think I've made mistakes in this area. So when I talk about this now, it's coming from the benefit of hindsight, I guess, rather than me crystal ball gazing. Hey, we, we can learn from your mistakes. We're good. very gracious. I mean, it, I've been making games for 24-ish years now. I've got a lot of miles on the clock, as it were. So uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. not a spring chicken anymore. And I, and I think that the reason I have... I feel I've made mistakes with leveling up my career is that I look at my, I guess my age group of people who join the industry at the same time as me and so on. And, you know, they're off starting up companies or they're getting companies now to billion dollar valuations. People I started my career with at the same time uh, in 1999 now are running entire like multi-million dollar businesses. Right. And I, I kind of look at that and feel like perhaps I've missed the boat here somewhere. Um, but I, I guess there's a part of me that looks at that and says, well, be true to yourself. Right? I've never been particularly about the business side of making video games. I've been more about the craft, the product, the passion, the the team building side of this. Like I said before, I'm not the guy who's going to have the seed of an idea that becomes a billion dollar product. I want to I want to build a field that lets you plant hundreds of those seeds. Um, so I, I kind of I'd say my advice for leveling up your career is figure out what you want your career to do first and foremost. Again, back to that previous question about um, uh, getting into the industry. If you know you're going to be an engineer, what does the career path look like? That where do you want to where do you want to cap out? Where's your natural glass ceiling in this? Do you want to be a CTO? Are you happy being a a principal engineer on a great product in a cool company? You know where do you where do you want this to go? Um, and then I guess the uh, the sort of additional point on that is like. Don't be an island. And what I mean by that is like, it takes a real broad, diverse range of skills to make video games mm. these days. Um, and I've I've seen some really great people who are very, very talented, um, great programmers, great artists, great designers, who only think about that singular track. They don't realize that the skills you have are only as good as how well you can put them into use within the collective culture of your team, within the collective um, mindset of building the product you're working on. Um, so try and understand how, if you're a programmer, try and understand how the artists work, their tool chain, their pipeline, understand the impact design has on the things that you're doing. Try and find ways to, to create those conversations and overlap so you understand a broad variety of what the team does. Um, and I guess, what I'm saying here is this is this is kind of like a career path. If it were me, I, I'm looking towards like COO type things in the long term yeah. of my future. This is about kind of having that breadth of understanding of what different people do, seeing the big picture of how you kind of put all those jigsaw pieces together to understand how things come together to form the whole at the end. Um, so for me, I'd say it's about really being curious about, about other disciplines, talking to other people about those things that they do um, and understanding what they do. So you can understand the value that they bring. And I think that that's helped me a lot, um, even though I probably, I'm not as far advanced in my career as other people my age. I think I'm probably happier with the choices I've made than some of those people because I'm staying true to myself. I'm doing the kind of things that I like to do in video games. And if I end up not doing the things I like to do, I usually leave the company and go and find someone that can offer me that. Yeah, I like it. And you, it makes it easy to wake up in the morning, right? Because you, yeah. you, you've stuck you've stuck to those core principles. And I, I wake up smiling rather than crying, which I don't think everybody who leads in the video games industry can say. <laughs> I can imagine, especially recently. So yeah, I, can <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, one thing you mentioned there, I think is so important because the best contractors I've seen firsthand, they skill stack. So they've, yes. and they like literally, and it compounds. Like it's not like a, you now have exposure to here. So you're twice as good. It's like 10 times as valuable to a company if you've seen all these things and if you're naturally a consultant that will happen naturally in terms of like logistically you're going to have different experiences over and yeah. over again and some of them still enter a studio as a senior engineer but they bring on all these processes and things they've learned 
and they are not just a principal engineer. I have a great example, which is uh, Roy, who started with us, and he came from an indie background, but mm. he was a master prototyper, basically. He prototyped so many amazing games, and that indie background, plus he's worked on his own game, and he actually happens to be the nicest guy in the world in terms of people culture. So he was yeah. like a culture ad, master prototyper, so he helped all those things. But his role was animation engineer. <laughs> but he came in with all that. And he had less years, five years in the gaming industry relative yeah. to others. And some of that wasn't even industry. But his skill stacked like crazy. So Fantastic. That is something that you can just do. And... Let me, let me know when Roy needs a contract next, Harry. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll try to convince him. He wants to work on his own game. Um, trust me. I'm, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, no. Uh, big up, Roy. Lovely. All right. Um, we're going to go. We went, we went a bit over, but that's fine. So we have a few questions. Um, my software here hasn't got all the questions I can highlight, but I will highlight uh, the ones I can and the ones I can't. I will read them off. All righty. So the question i have immediately in front of me is from alexandru so i'll read it out for you callum so how do you feel remote work impacts company culture slash the team and what do you think are the measures that should be set in place to tackle the negatives in any so really focusing on the remote aspect of things when it comes to culture cool okay thanks for the question alex um so i'm going to start by sort of indirectly answering this i guess and talk about the vision for your company or vision for your game when you're talking about remote working and the impacts of, of team or company culture, making sure the team understands the thing they're making, the vision for it, the audience that you're trying to target for it, making sure that that, that is instilled in the team is, is, I guess, first and foremost, how I build culture inside of a product by having a strong product vision, something that everybody's aligned around. That, that basically creates the, the hub that you build the culture around. So um, in that particular thing, I've got, I think whether you're in the office or whether you're working remotely or working hybrid, as long as you all agree the thing you're making is X, Great, you've got a starting point to then uh, to, to build the rest of the culture around that. Um, when it then comes to sort of day-to-day -day working practices and like the actual implementation of, I guess, working culture, the way we treat each other as individuals, um, remote has created a bunch of challenges for that, but it's also created a bunch of opportunities. Um, you know, people can be less distracted working from home or working remotely. They can get more time to focus on things. Um, and typically I find the people who worry more around the, um, the impacts of like team culture and focus are usually product managers and producers. Yeah. Um, they're the ones who are trying to keep an eye on the, the, the direction the ship is steering in. Uh, and it is much more difficult for product managers and producers to operate in a remote world than it is for, I don't know, programmers or artists, also people who've got uh, an individual contributor kind of skill set that they're adding towards the product. Um, so I think my, my, I guess my advice for that um, would be very much around the producer and product manager finding the right communication channels with their different leads or if the team is small enough, their entire team to understand how the team feels about the progress. Um, and also make sure the team is part of the process of building the plans, building the uh, building the sort of measurements that you're going to use to try and uh, to try and build the product and uh, and the culture you want for the product, uh, and make sure that they're part of that journey with you. So when I've done, um, I guess most recently I've done this would have been actually at Quali, um, where I know Alex works at the moment. 
um, uh, where we were trying to build plans before we'd hired product managers and producers for the casual games that I was heading up. Um, and people were working all over the globe. You know, people you know, in the Leamington office, people all over the place, so a second office in Bangalore. So we were very much like remote first. Uh, and building the first draft of plans we had for, for the solitaire game we were working on was about me acting as product manager and producer because we hadn't hired those roles yet and just trying to get input from everybody, making sure that everybody felt comfortable with this. And it wasn't my plan at the end of the day, even though I was the product manager and producer. It was the team's plan manifesting itself through my fingers, typing it up. Um, so I guess that that's, that's the main thing is like, make sure that you as a product owner or product manager, you don't really own the, 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 the timelines for things. You can try and force deadlines and so on, but the team and how quickly they can do things own the delivery. Um, so make sure that they define what they, the, 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 the sort of the roadmap, the impacts and so on. Cause that then means that the remote work is easier to manage if everyone knows what they're doing, when they're doing it and how they're doing it. Uh, and how do you tackle the negatives? Um, this is, this is a really interesting one. I think there are some companies who've, who've historically struggled with remote work and tackling sort of negative impacts of this. Um, I'm personally very pro remote work. I think it's the, the future business model we'll all be embracing at some point in the next 20 to 30 years. 20 um, to 30 years. Wait, wait, please. I mean, that in, I think in 20 to 30 years, the norm will be people working remotely and the expectation of like, in-office work will be will be a, a dinosaur, archaic kind of way of looking at the world. Um, mm. Whereas now we've got, you know, companies like Roblox and so on, you know, trying to force people to come back to the office and so on. I think that model... That model speaks about the culture of that company. Let's put it that way without getting yeah. too far on a, on a slamming on Roblox. Kind of, uh, I just think we will see because it's yeah. not happened yet. That's the like these are a bunch of announcements but yeah sorry to derail yeah um and then in terms of tackling the negatives i think it depends how much you can trust your leads i, I like i said before use your leads as the canary in the coal mine for culture um and the job of i guess the product manager or the central person who owns the end delivery of the product is not to be the person solving those problems individually but trying to solve the problems with their leads unless it's the leads that are the problem in which case the answer as much as it sucks is usually that they've been a bad hire uh, and they're not the right for conversation time yeah Awesome. Uh, so I've had to bring up some of the questions on my phone because I've lost some here, but that is fine. So I will read uh, some out. All righty. So the next question is from Pascal. How do you monitor and shape culture in practical ways? What books slash courses would you recommend about it? Cool. So monitoring and shaping it in practical ways is, is I guess, the, the most difficult part. It's easier to sit and talk about these things. Yeah. Um, the way I tend to do it, I guess, in the most direct way is actually to sit and talk to people and, and ask them questions around how things are going. Um, towards the end of my time at Quali, I'd got, what, three, four games up and running. Um, we'd gone from being just me and a handful of people uh, in the Leamington Spa office to being, you know, 50, 60 people all working on different things. And I wasn't hands-on day-to-day doing any, like, individual contributor work anymore. I was running the whole department. But my calendar would be full most days with, like, back-to-back one-to-ones with people or, or chatting around <laughs> things that would crop up. Um, and I quite like that, right? I like that I'd shifted out of being a doer to a leader. Um, and and my most useful and perhaps obvious practical tool is talk to people about the culture. Um, one of the things I also did quite regularly as well is I talked to the HR department around uh, employee engagement surveys and try and make sure that when the company did one, we had ways to drill down into the casual department. And I would actually, uh, particularly in the last couple of companies I've worked in, when the company did uh, employee engagement surveys, I'd quite often end up rewriting large parts of it because the way that they would do it was very much like big corporate copy paste type employee engagement. Any special questions? 
Um, so it was the, the, I guess it's the sort of generic things around, you know, like, please like what would you put happiness with a company on a scale of one to 10. Um, but for me, it was more like, you know, um, how, one of the questions I love to put in there for employee engagement actually is, um, how well do you think the company lets you work to your full potential? Cause ah. that's right. And that's one of my favorite questions. Um, because ultimately for me about, uh, my background is production. It's about teams being more productive. And the best way to measure that is by people looking at their work and saying, can I do my best work here? Am I producing work that I'm happy with? Um, and if not, that's a real red flag that your culture isn't working for your team. You want to get involved and try and answer that. So I guess as a practical question, you can add to any team you're working with right now, how close to your potential best do you feel you're working inside your team? And if it's yeah, less than six, seven, then perhaps you want to go and have a chat to those guys and figure out why that is. Um, one really good uh, example, I asked that question three, four years ago in a role that I was working in. Uh, and one of the guys came back and said, actually, I feel like it's a two. Like I'm, I'm really just not doing stuff that's really that useful. Um, and he was one of those people on the team was quiet, didn't really ever raise his opinion on things. Like could coast along, did his work. It's like, yeah. I don't want to do this as a job. And we actually sat and we talked about it over a beer one night after work. It's like, then dude, like, let me help you find a job in a different company. Like I have figured out a plan to use my network of people to help him find a job in a different company, um, different skill set he was using. And it, he's super happy now, but sometimes it's worth knowing those things because it having an unhappy employee in your team makes me sad personally. And hopefully it makes yeah. other people sad. Try and be a nice person and help them find a job elsewhere. And again, selfish to be selfless. That will yeah. make, that will, it helps everyone, 100%. And I want to comment on the back-to-back meeting thing because I have a love-hate relationship when I hear mm. someone say that because if you had back-to-back meetings, then when do you actually do stuff? However, I feel like it touches on the fact that you can get osmosis of information when you're in the office quite naturally. And yeah. I feel like you just recreated that a little when you did that in a remote setting. And I feel like if you have to do it, there might be like a season of back-to-back meetings or mm-hmm. like for a month, especially if you're new to a head of production role. Yeah. That sounds like you can get a lot of lessons and learn them way yeah. before the fire starts. So I, there's, I, there's also Harry, sorry to, to jump over you. There's also, I guess, reactive and proactive meetings. Mm. Right? If, if it's a proactive booking where I've gone out and said, Hey, all my direct reports or people in my team, I want to chat to you guys at this time. Great. I've chosen to use that time for thing that I, the thing that I mm. find productive and valuable. If it's reactive meetings where it's like, Holy crap, mm. this problems come up. We've got to talk about this. Those are the worst kind of back-to-back meetings yeah. to have. And I think companies that are struggling, you could almost look at the meeting titles and try and figure out <laughs> calendars, whether they're a good company or a bad company based on how many reactive meetings they're having versus how many proactive meetings they're having. It's and like, when I was at Quali and things were going well towards the end with my, my direct reports, most of my meetings were proactive ones where I booked those with my one-to-ones to talk about things um, and to help them get the best out of their teams and, and figure out what they're doing rather than the reactive problematic meetings of like, you know, dealing with emergencies that have cropped up. Yeah, and I feel like the proactive meetings will reduce the reactive meetings. So you need mm. to you need to do one to avoid uh, too yeah. many of the other. Maybe a, maybe a top tip is to figure out as a as a ratio of like proactive to reactive meetings in your calendar. If it's tipping too far one way, or the time spent on reactive yeah. rather than proactive is is in the bad column, maybe that's a sign again that your your culture needs addressing. I feel like if you wanted to look at someone's CV, you'd get X amount of information. But if you just saw a month of their calendar you can learn so much and you can also categorize nowadays so you could have proactive yeah. and reactive like i color coordinate so i know like how many podcasts i'm doing in a month and how many um conversations i'm having and you yeah. can 
clearly sees like, oh, I'm spending 20% of my time on LinkedIn. I should probably make that into 10% because yeah. I probably can do most of that in 10% of the time. So yeah, yeah massive that point. I think I've helped a, a former former um, uh, employee of mine, or I guess a, a person I was line managing do with their time management was actually break their time down. So give me a map of your your average working two-week sprint that you work on. Cool. How much time goes into doing this, this, and this? Yeah. When we sat and mapped it out, we realized that actually about 30% of his time was going into pointless meetings with with other managers amazing because now you can do 30 percent more work yeah exactly and it's like oh I, i've got to work late tonight because i've got to do i've got to make up for all this time i'm losing in meetings how much value do these meetings add cool don't go to them great Way. so much back and these are all instant changes i, I just I, I, and they're all common sense mate that's the, that's the scary thing common sense need, is surprisingly not that common <laughs> we need reminders more than we need lessons callum i've realized mm. that there's so like many things that. Yeah, take it. I've stole it from someone. You take it. Um, lovely. Um, we have a couple more questions. So one from Eugene. So the Eugene is, I, this is, I guess, it's a challenge to create a culture. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, I'm not thinking. This is Eugene's question. Like when it comes to a huge company, 1,000 people plus. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned King, but we can use another hypothetical example here. Like I've, Eugene is saying, what I've seen is everyone talking about culture but that results in nothing productive. So I think it touches on potentially that waterfall comment you meant. That was one idea, but yeah, could you speak on this a bit more? Yeah, and, and Eugene, you raise a very good point, right? The bigger a company gets, the harder it is to have, I guess, the the one culture to rule them all, right? Um, what, what I've seen work really well, though, is the bigger a company gets, so let's take an Activision or an EA or a Microsoft as an example. Right? I've worked for all three of those companies. The, the I guess the cultural part of the of the company sorry the company culture part of this so activision ea and microsoft is actually quite light touch on the day-to-day that the actual individual studios are doing um the the actual culture itself is defined more by the studio or the the department or the area of inside that company that you work within so when i was working for ea i was actually in a subdivision of ea called playfish doing facebook games and the culture there um was very much defined by the local leadership of that studio the culture was the playfish culture rather than the ea culture and there were some touch points where overlapped in terms of i guess generic efficiencies you'd get from hiring process or like big company policies um but actually what i would say there is if you want the culture to to be effective for the local employees push back on some of the policies that don't work for you guys i think some of the things i would say that big company policy has has kind of had a detrimental effect in the past is uh, when I've seen companies that were relatively small get acquired by bigger companies and they're like, cool, well, now we're going to follow your um, IT process or your HR processes. Actually, you lose a little bit of the company personality from the acquired entity in doing yeah. that. So try and fight back. And if you've got a good culture that works as your company grows, don't let it get diluted, whether it's by acquisition, or whether it's by sort of natural growth, don't let it get diluted. Um, but it's, it's not easy to create a company culture that spans a thousand people, particularly as we get into remote working and so on. Um, but I think it is possible to create the, I guess, the the compass you navigate by coming from the company level, but then the individual culture happening at the operational level. Like where does that culture have the most impact, I guess, is the key thing. But then to, to flip that around, I think when it comes to company performance and the impact that has on the the cultural value that or, or I guess the, the value people place on themselves and their contribution towards the company's progress. I think that the company should have an onus to talk about its progress, its results, its updates, and so on, so that people can feel like they're getting swept up in that momentum, they're getting carried along in that journey with the rest of the company. So I think in that case, it's probably the only time I'd ever argue, Eugene, that company culture um, at that scale 
kind of is almost one directional like the the company updates the 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 company talking about its achievements or its progress should be company wide but the operational culture should be located wherever it has the most impact yeah 100% and i know of a couple examples like rovio i feel like has a strong example where each of their studios very autonomous very yeah. their own processes and that's even within one brand so i can only imagine if a Big company by small company. If you do have a say, I would fight for that autonomy. And of course, you're going to share lessons across the teams and stuff. But I feel like if you separate and mm-hmm. have that more autonomy, it's just there's benefits to it. And I think it's just one thing that I think you raised, which was really cool. Um, awesome. Fantastic. And Eugene said, love the insight about department boundaries. Very oh, nice. Thank you. Awesome. So we've spoken for 80 minutes and I don't think we waffled much at all so well done us uh, but yeah i think we're going to bring it to a close <laughs> nice um before i wrap this up uh, callum is there anything you wanted to say any call to actions red carpet time like is there anything you want um would, is anyone are you going to be do you want people to follow you anything like that I mean, if people want to follow me on on, uh, on LinkedIn, they're more than welcome to. Um, it's pretty much the only social network I use these days. So you can tell that I'm not a Facebook user, not an X user. Like I, I well, had LinkedIn influencers, baby. Uh, uh, yeah, I, if you want to find me on want to find me on LinkedIn, please feel free to follow me. Um, there'll actually be a little update about my future working life coming next week. Uh, start a new role on Monday that I'm not going to name drop now, but you can see Don't what that looks that, like yeah. on Monday. <laughs> um and and i would just say you know thank you everybody for tuning in um and i hope you've all if you've not not learned something at least you've kind of had some reinforcements of things you believe from this but hopefully you have learned something um and you know please go out there and try and create the kind of cultures you wish you could work in uh you know don't worry too much about whether or not it's the uh the perfect culture because culture changes um be flexible be adaptable um and keep listening to harry's podcast because this guy's going to be dropping some more knowledge over the next few weeks so yeah i'll plug you rather than me mate hey i'll take it i'll take it um awesome so you can find callum godfrey i'm pretty sure he's the first of his name at least it will be easy to find um yeah. and- look, look for a guy who looks like a potato wearing glasses and you, you can't go far wrong stop it uh, <laughs> uh, awesome <laughs> lovely callum thank you so much for joining and i thank was you. checking the retention we pretty much had 100% like it's hovered around the same amount of number, which is always a good sign. So thank you everyone for your questions and for listening in. And like Callum said, I have a lot of roundtable podcasts going, but also I wanted to do one announcement where I am, and at Evolution, we're starting to do a new format called Evo Inspire. So you might know us for our roundtable formats. This is kind of a version of a one-to-one podcast where it's offline, done in an hour, and it's very much kind of built around the lesson you want to preach, but also a bit of your journey. So if anyone's listening and they, I'm sure we've approached many of you for a roundtable podcast. Uh, this is a bit kind of less commitment, I guess. And it's a way for you to give back. So if you are interested in any of those details or any information you want, please just reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. And yeah, if you're listening on Spotify or any other podcast platform, you can find all the events that we're doing at Evolution Recruitment Gaming. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone.